come to bear a lot of uh, scrutiny over time. Gene, we're very glad to have you, and uh, the floor is yours, and then we'll have questions after. Okay, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I always find these sessions really interesting and thought-provoking. So I'm, I'm only going to talk for, you know, about 10 minutes, and then I want to open it up to questions because it's more interesting if I uh, fill you in on what you want to know as opposed to assuming I know what you want to know and telling you that. Um, the, the, the super PACs roles so far in 2012 have proved to be something we didn't expect. Uh, we saw them in 2010 and they came out in just you know, hard partisan ways. And that we expected. But the new wrinkle for the presidential is that we didn't expect the candidates to get their own PACs and then the candidates to turn around and use them against one another. And as I'm sure you all have seen and are aware, there's about there's more than $70 million that's already been spent by super PACs, and all but about $6 million of it has been Republican on Republican. And as a consequence, in the last Bloomberg News poll, all of the candidates who are running for president in the Republican primary saw a 10-point, well, Santorum and Romney saw a 10-point increase in their unfavorables, all driven by their own party colleagues. Gingrich's uh, disapproval rating only went up three points, however, it was already quite so high, that put him at 59%. So, um, but still the same thing happened. And what we have reported on and, and many other outlets have reported on is also uh, a development we did not anticipate, and that was that this entry of millionaires whose new toy is a presidential campaign. And the way that they have managed to quite publicly float candidates longer than any political Darwinian theory would have allowed them to survive. So you all are well aware Adelson and Gingrich and uh, Rick Santorum has two or three million dollar donors that helped him along the way during um, his dark, quiet days and kept him in the race. And what has been overlooked, though, is how Romney's um, donors, and there are about 14 millionaire, millionaires and billionaires who are in the mix here. It's a very small group of donors. Um, how they also have sustained his campaign. Because Romney, when Gingrich was surging after Iowa and after his debate performances, Romney's super PAC dropped $18 million in <coughs> negative ads on Gingrich and stopped him dead in his tracks. Fast forward a month and Santorum is starting to surge and restore our future. Romney's super PAC dropped $16 million in negative ads. The combined negative ads run by the super PACs for Gingrich and for Santorum totals $6 million. So all of this is weighted incredibly towards the Romney campaign. And in both cases, he was able to, in Gingrich's case, stop him. In Santorum's case, trip him and slow him down. 
and we won't, we'll have to do a lot more analysis uh, after or even now to look back and find out what the real implications of that are. Because it's quite clear that Romney is not winning the base. He's winning with machine and he's winning with money and he's eking it through. But he's not capturing the Republican Party's core voters. And that is bound to have ramifications later. And what has kept him in the race has been restore our future. So it's so we've seen the candidates benefit in different ways from these wealthy donors. And ultimately, if the Republican candidate loses in November, this will be the very start of where the recriminations begin. Not just the role of the super PACs, but also add to that the calendar itself. When the RNC got together after the last cycle, they wanted to recreate Obama and Hillary. And so they rewrote their own calendar to extend their primary process. And But they did it in far more complicated ways than the Democrats do it, which has made delegate counting um, difficult and probably all wrong. <coughs> you know, we'll all quote AP because we'll hang it on them. But in the end, there are so, you know, you look at Iowa and there's, there are delegates allocated from Iowa, but they're all uncommitted. And so what Romney's campaign is starting to do now is starting to lobby those delegates and flip them, even if they're sort of assigned unofficially to Santorum. So it's a, it's a uh, pretty complicated system out there that they're dealing with. Ultimately, I think they've achieved a couple of things. First of all, they did clearly extend the primary. And secondly, to the degree that they recreated the dynamics of the Clinton-Obama primary, they did it in a way that the Obama character is Rick Santorum and Romney is Hillary Clinton. And if they come out, as the Democrats did, where we go into a convention where things are very tight, a real interesting thing to watch is how the base of the Republican Party accepts Romney if they do, the same way Hillary Clinton's supporters had to accept Barack Obama. Now, Democrats are cats. We know that. So it wasn't pretty. And it was really, really hard what the Democratic Party had to do uh, four years ago. But the truth is, this new Republican base is more cat-like than dog-like. And the Republicans are not at all accustomed to that. And the idea that you know Haley Barber and some other guys can meet with everyone and walk out to this particular base and say, you know, look, it's Romney by two. We'll see what they say. Mm -hmm. But you know, they are the energy, and they are the voices of the party right now. And I think that the Republicans have set themselves up for a fight that they never anticipated. Um, the other thing that they have not done is when Obama the when Obama was winning and, and fighting the long fight against Hillary Clinton he was backfilling behind himself and so he would go into New Hampshire and build a structure that when he left New Hampshire didn't entirely go away and he did that in Iowa and he did that in state after state so by the time he came out of June he wasn't just broke and wounded, he had this entire machine behind him that he had been building all along. Romney is not building anything. He's all carpet bombing. It's all about TV. 
So in that case, they did not duplicate what the Democrats achieved four years ago, in part because none of these candidates uh, had the same kind of perspective that Obama and his team did. So Romney um, had four offices in, New, offices in New Hampshire that don't exist anymore. When he becomes the nominee, he has to start recreating everything that he created in the primary. He hasn't been able to sustain it. And that's a big difference when he comes out in June, because that was a huge advantage for Obama. We, in the media, thought he would come out broke, battered, and empty. And we were wrong. He came out stronger. And in the case of the Republicans, their front runner is getting weaker and weaker as the process goes on by uh, looking at just the data points, by measurement of approval rating, uh, by uh, any kind of trust meter, and in terms of his fundraising, because he's tapping out um, and with his big donors. He didn't even launch a small donor operation until two weeks ago. So again, huge difference. Every one of these Republicans, and especially Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum, thought they'd wake up one day and they'd be Barack Obama and their internet little lights would all be going off and in would come all the cash and presto, I am a legitimate candidate with real cash to spend. None of them have recreated that dynamic. I don't think any of us truly understand exactly how Obama pulled that off. It was sort of karma and cosmic. And very few candidates have ever been able to, well, no, no candidate's been able to pull off what he did. And duplicating it from the outset was going to be difficult. But they all banked on it. And so they didn't invest in trying to create a real small donor program. And now, when they're at a point when they need those kinds of resources that, are, that don't take time, that don't take high dollar to collect, they don't have the machinery in place to do it. So there are a lot of great big differences between what the Republicans had hoped to create in this primary and what they ultimately have achieved that, in fact, could disadvantage them when they go into the general election. Of course, the other big thing they overlooked is they were running against an incumbent president, which the Democrats weren't four years ago. So an extended primary versus a short primary is not much you know, lost there, but when you've got President Obama with 170 some million dollars already raised and going, um, you're, you're up against a formidable machine while you're having this protracted fight. Um, and so the, the super PACs have had their effect by helping and hurting all of the candidates. And the, and the big difference with the super PACs is cycled is the way that they're candidate associated and how they have used those against one another. And we will it will remain to be seen whether they their their real impact was floating Newt and Santorum or was it helping Romney, a candidate who generally is unacceptable to sixty to seventy percent of his base, helping him defeat two candidates that would have been more acceptable to their base. So, uh, you know, time will tell on those two. And the super PAC for Obama is just getting started. Um, we believe they're going to come in with about $4 million, which is great when you look at $148,000 the last month. So the Democrats were definitely not playing 
Um, they are now that Obama has red, uh, green-lighted their, those donations, and what we're going to see more and more from the White House are showcase appearances at fundraisers for the Super PAC, which will be something something we'll you know be writing about later because it just goes to how these Super PACs and the candidates and the, this no coordination is uh, not real in any practical sense. Um, we at Bloomberg. This cycle bought the television advertising data from CMAG, a company that tracks advertising of all sorts, but political advertising in particular. And we can look on there and we can see where every buy is and how many times an ad is running and all of that. And what I discovered in that process is that the candidates buy it and their PACs buy it. So all they have to do is look at the weekly report from CMAG and they know exactly what the other one is doing. So there's so many ways that um, you know it's Swiss cheese when it comes to the lack of coordination. I don't quite follow what you mean by that. Well, the um, the CMAG data comes out daily and comes out weekly, and what it shows us is um, Mitt Romney has X number of ads, and they ran at this time, and they give an estimated cost, but that's irrelevant when it comes to the coordination. So that means his pack can open up that report and see he's not in, you know, say in Florida, he's not in the Tampa market. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. And so then they can just go fill the Tampa market. Um, so they can track each other on a daily basis and see where there are weaknesses or if they have a sense of how strong the advertising buy ought to be, they could fill in the gaps if they see that they're not buying at levels that make the most sense. Um, so that's what the CMAC data can do to help them. And with that question, why don't we open it up? Okay, well, I, I reserve the right to ask the first question. <laughs> we'll get to you, believe me. One, is, has anyone gotten to Justice Kennedy and asked him whether he is as surprised as the rest of the world is? That's a real uh, burning question in Washington. No one has been able to ask him it, in a way that we can get any co coherent response. So we don't know <laughs> if he is disturbed by it. I mean, he did. So uh, yes, he was the swing vote. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, we have heard rumors that, and not just he, but the other justices are surprised at what emerged. Because if you remember the court case, the court case was largely about corporations. Well, we're not talking about corporations. We're talking about you know, a couple of wealthy guys buying presidential candidates, and that—that that isn't that wasn't even a major thrust of the lawsuit itself. Um, you know, I, I don't know how the court ever unrings this particular bell. Uh, Kennedy and the rest of them were in favor of disclosure, and if Congress could ever pass the Disclosure Act, you know, that might be something that could at least open up the books and let us see who's doing this, because they, um, as every cycle shows, they're becoming more and more creative in how they hide their own identities. What we've seen this cycle that we didn't see before, we've, we've seen the past, the rise of the Sea Force, where we take Freedom Works. Freedom Works is a super PAC, and it has an arm that's a C4. And the only donor to the super PAC is the C4. So you have Freedom Works gives to Freedom Works, and they run their ads and there's just not even one name associated with it. 
we saw that they've taken that to the extreme but this cycle what we've seen is all of a sudden these new LLCs pop up where there are individuals who create a little corporation give their money behind that name and then we have to go try to figure out who the hell they are and we've cracked a few of them but you know, there are going to be some that we don't crack and those are million dollar donations in some cases also <coughs> why do you think that given the passion of the Tea Party right side of the uh, Republican equation. Why do you think that has not been able to be translated into small donations? Because the, the passion seems to be there. So what is, what is the problem that Obama was able to solve that the passion cannot be harnessed in financial terms for this other group? Right. It, it, well, the test of the Tea Party energy in that regard is going to be Santorum. Um, it could be a matter of scope. If you look at the Tea Party and you look at what Obama built, you know, this big national, I mean, they've had 1.6 million donors already. And you, if you look at the donation uh, disclosure forms for really any of the Republicans, they go 15 pages. There's just not that many donors. Santorum, though, has now... Uh, emerged as the candidate. For a long time they they were divided and they kept moving and as we all saw with the rise of Michelle Bachman and then Perry and then Kane and then Newt and now and then they kind of looked at Santorum and they still weren't real happy but now they are. Right? He's clearly the candidate. We had a story last week I sent out to my reporters and said um, Santorum has no money. He's in debt. He has no machine. He has nobody working for him. So how is he beating Romney? And what they discovered is that the anti-abortion groups are running um, photo registration and bus tours on his behalf. He's got um, the evangelical preachers talking from you know, their pulpits. And he's tapped into at the Tea Party. And so you have all of these well-organized, well-established activist groups that have now rallied behind his campaign, and they are doing the work of what a campaign staff would do. They're, they're doing pamphlets and that sort of thing. So that's where we may see some small donor emerge. You've been at this a long time. <clears throat> when you see, a, you know, this is a, no, without question, a very hard-fought primary and an extended um, on the other hand, the Republican Party does have the great unifying uh, thing of Barack Obama going for it, which is, seems to be the, 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 the argument about who is going to be more effective against Obama, who is going to be more anti-Obama than you know, the next person, or be the non-Obama, and so forth. When the, the nominee is named, Will that be enough to reunite the Republican Party in a significant way? It could go. It could go 80 percent of the way. There, that sentiment, without a doubt, if we look at, if you look at our public opinion polls, electability is really high, and what electability translates to is beating Obama, and that is um, probably more often than not the number one reason people are picking the candidate. <coughs> it is the quality that sustains Romney. Um, with a party that doesn't like him at all. 
them. They don't want to pick him. They don't want to nominate him. But they may do it because they just think he can beat Obama. So that is a real motivation on their part. Uh, and that is certainly what the party hopes will be the rallying theme, is that, and it was, in, to a large degree, for the Democrats four years ago. We have to get behind, you know, Obama because we've now got to take on the Republican Party. And so, and in that respect, Republicans are, you, you know, that's where their dog-like qualities come in, where they pack up and they go behind one, one of the candidates. And so that's what they're hoping for. The Tea Party people are not that easy to herd. And so they may fight him along the way. They may insist upon a certain kind of vice president. Uh, it could be that, you know, well, Romney's people are aware of this and they may be already vetting the kind of candidates that would be suitable. Uh, I'm not sure if that would be Santorum, but someone maybe like Santorum that Romney could get along with. Some, somewhere in there would be a great way to patch over the differences in the party. And if they, I think, if the conservatives who don't trust Romney because of his changing positions on gay marriage, abortion rights, and health care, if they could be convinced that there is, that they've got a watchdog in the White House and the vice president, then I think his ability to um, marry the party back together would be eased a great deal. There was, a, there was an article in the Washington Post this weekend um, about the Romney campaign, and it was, it included a statement about a, uh, I can't remember his name, but an evangelical leader who said, who was quoted in the article as saying, if Romney wants the support of the evangelical right, then for instance, he's going to have to make Rick Santorum the Attorney General Luke Gingrich to the UN and, uh, <laughs> and my life so and, much more and, interesting. And John Bolton's Secretary of State. <laughs> <laughs> those are the those are the kind of deals that we cut. Now that um, you know, now, once that, Romney now is that will how will that given your political sort of savvy, how will that work both on the pro and the negative side? Well, I I do think if Romney. I think Romney will have to deal with the conservative base in that some capacity like that. Does he have to take them all? No. They may, you know, that may be a bargaining position. You know, we want three and the deal is cut that they get one um, in a good, strong, strategic place. Uh, whether it's a, as the vice presidential candidate or AG, you know, it could be something like that. Personally, I think he's going to have to do it in the vice president position because of turnout. It, you know, to, to say, I promise I'll make him attorney general with his reputation for flip-flopping, <laughs> who's going to believe that once he's got the White House, he's actually going to follow through? They aren't going to believe him. They don't believe him now. So they're going to want to see the name on the ticket, I think. And so that, I think, is really where the deal would be cut. And then when it comes to the cabinet secretaries, I think at that point, Romney, like Obama, will assert if he were to win would assert his own leadership at that point. And will that, <clears throat> I mean, given the critical nature, as I understand it, of the independent vote, um, not the true believers on either side, but the ones who are, um, how would that affect that group? Well, it would depend who, which one, if it's Santorum or if it's someone like Santorum, because there are, there are strong 
con social conservatives uh, without some of the things that Santorum has said. So if it's not, if he chooses someone who's um, got those core beliefs but has a public profile that's a little less edgy, um, you know, it may neutralize it where it reassures the base and doesn't offend the independents. And then we just go into a fight over the economy. Uh, let me open this to students, yes. Um, do you think there's any appetite among these donors for the sort of down-ballot uh, super PAC activity that we saw in 2010? So the Senate is obviously going to be a huge and hard-fought battleground. Do you have a sense that there are organizations sort of waiting in the wings for the nominee to be chosen, at which point they'll flip on for the down-ballot races, or not? There are dozens of them, and they have, they've been raising money like crazy. And that is where this, those super PACs haven't even engaged. What we've seen is a trickle. And there again, the Democrats have set up a system uh, to try to protect themselves this cycle. And early in the last year, when we talked to donors, they would say, well, I'm not going to worry about that Obama thing. He's going to raise a lot of money. I'm a lot worried about the Senate. But when you look at the amount of money they're raising, they are not competitive. They have, they have the um, majority pack, which is going to help Senate Democrats. And they've raised, you know, six, eight million dollars. Then um, they have a House pack that they ultimately disbanded and combined with the Senate one because it just wasn't raising the money. And part of that is because Democratic donors don't believe in this. They, they don't like super PACs. They don't want to give to super PACs. And so, you know, what I hear from Democratic strategists is, you know, we may just have to take a beating for a while before the checkbooks really open up. Um, but Karl Rove is waiting in the wings. And Crossroads has already got, you know, 40 million or something sitting in the bank, and they haven't put an ad on the air. And what was intriguing to me when they were last quoted is that at the end of 2010, they said, Essentially, they're going to get behind the Republican presidential nominee. So whatever firepower they got, they were going to aim it at Obama. And that's what scared Axelrod and the president to the point where they said, okay, open the doors, open the account. Because what Axelrod told me is if they, would, if they were going to spend $50 million to try to win the House, they'll spend $200 million to try to win the White House. And so that's what they thought they were facing, and they could still face it. But the most recent public comments from American Crossroads are that they are aiming at the Senate, which I think says two things. They're not looking at the presidential race as being as competitive as they thought it might be, and that the real place to make his bet and Rove is anything but, you know, he's completely cynical about this. He wants to win. And so he sees the Senate as a primer target. It could be it could be a head fake though. You could turn around and drop you know fifty million tomorrow on Obama and say, "Well, I was just kidding." Other <laughs> students who have questions. Okay. Uh, looking ahead at the remaining primaries, there are only a few where they have it's winner take all. Mm -hmm. So as you look at the ones that <coughs> delegate uh, separation or assignment split, can you envision a scenario in which? Romney does not get to 1144. We've been looking at that question, and we have a very hard time coming up with, yes, he, he can't make it, or there is a scenario. We, we, 
so many things would have to break against him and for Santorum that, it, you know, when they say act of God, it may just have to take that. Because, you know, it means Newt really has to fall off the map and Romney has to, you know, really become weakened. Santorum's got to scoop everything else up and then make up the leap. And Romney's far ahead. So it's... You know, we're trying to come up with a paragraph to run tonight that says, you know, what has he got to do? And we're thinking it's going to come in the range of Santorum would have to win 75% of all the rest of the delegates to catch up. It's somewhere in that range. Um, so, but, but, but does Santorum really need to catch up, or does he just need to prevent Mitt from being able to have committed delegates that would give it to him? That's where the trick is. <laughs> because he can get to 1144, but then what you have are all of these, so, you know, these delegates that AP has assigned, but they really aren't assigned. You know, that they did the math, but they didn't do the heart. And so while Romney may be going out trying to flip delegates, Santorum could go out and try to flip delegates too. What Romney needs to do is just win this thing. It's just what Obama had to do. He had to win it. Because as long as he didn't have it, Hillary and her people were not going to step down. And Romney needs to go and win it. And the, I think one of the big things I didn't expect in this cycle was to discover how weak Romney's machine really is. Yeah, they can throw money on TV, but we, in the beginning, were always writing about Romney who has the money and machine. Romney who has the money and the manpower. And I finally told my reporters, you know, three weeks ago, don't ever write that again. Because he has money, but he doesn't have the rest. And the way you can tell that is that, you know, Romney has two ways to not have one point in Michigan, for heaven's sakes. And that is, he can either go out and start winning over some of these evangelicals, hard, hard, but he must try, or change the complexion of the turnout. In the turnout thus far, 51% of the Republicans who have voted in these primaries are self-declared born-again Christians. Well, where is Romney's machine? You know, I mean, do we really think 51% of the Republican Party are evangelicals? No, they're not. They're all kinds of fiscal conservatives and, you know, I mean, they've got all kinds of little wings in their party. But they are not enthused about this race. They are not coming out. And if Romney had a real machine, he should be turning those people out. He should change and dilute if he was a strong candidate with a strong machine. And what we have been told is that the phone banks sometimes don't start until two days before election day. It's just not a good campaign machine. Yeah. So. Um, why did the Republicans want to duplicate Obama and Hillary? Because they they thought, um, well, they, they, every political cycle is like this, where I mean, you try to choose early. Like, the, didn't they try to change it so they wouldn't choose so early? Right. They did. That's what they did, and that's because they always try to duplicate what just happened the last victory, and so Obama won. So okay, let's go do that, and without really reflecting on what a unique political character he was in that cycle. Um, 
you know, like I said, Newt thinks he's a, thought he'd be Obama. You know, that's Newt, but you know, that's really what he thought. But Obama really had a lot of organization. Yeah, he did, and money. none of them, and none of them did that hard work. And so, you know, they they just looked at it on paper, and what they saw also was there. They reflected on their own candidate, McCain. And so McCain won in three races. And was he vetted enough? Ultimately, they concluded he had not been vetted enough. That probably was a fair conclusion. But the answer, when you're up against an incumbent president, may not have been the answer that they adopted. But they, they you know, I was on a show with Mike Murphy, the California's Republican strategist, and he was talking about, you know, the knife fight that'll come if they lose. And, um, and I said, well, Mike, you know, first in line in that fight is going to be the guy who came up with the idea to change the primary calendar. And he said, oh, no, he's not getting a knife. <laughs> John, uh, some have said that uh, uh, as the Republican um, candidates uh, push Romney more and more to the right so that he can become more attractive to the base, that that ultimately is a good thing for those of us who would like to see Romney elected because he's going to be further and further from the mass of Americans. So it would be great if he does go. Uh, out far. I mean, so he'll get the base, but isn't he going to alienate this uh, independent and Democrat thing? I mean, I don't want to worry about the House and Senate today, but uh, if we. If yeah, we the, Romney, the Romney campaign is very, very <coughs> concerned about that. And uh, a couple months ago, when I had lunch with a Democratic um, uh, strategist close to Obama's camp, they felt like the biggest victory out of the primary was where he got shoved on immigration for the Hispanic vote. But the impact may be more narrow than broad. He, right now, you can see the Hispanic gap widening. Um, that doesn't include a lot of independents. When we look, independents, we, we at Bloomberg look at them as swing voters, and we went and tried to identify who are they and how can we monitor them. And they're um, working class men, they are um, uh, women, middle-income women with children, and um, swing Catholics. Those are not regular Catholic goers, but irregular uh, mass attendees. And I forget what our fourth one is. But when we did our last poll, and we made a little subgroup of them, and so our numbers are not perfect right now because we were experimenting. We are trying to figure out, can we find them, and can we test them? And what we saw out of that it's not good news for the Obama administration. He's got a problem with every single one of these groups. And, you know, Romney's not running away with them, but Romney's not losing them either. So you know, we're going to do a story uh, this week that looks at how both Romney and Obama have problems with working class men. They don't like either of them. Um, so you go into a general, if Romney wins, with a toss-up. You know, and how do they win them over? So the independents, uh, we expected to see, especially after the birth control conversation, the gender gap. It was three points. Now we wouldn't. We looked at our poll and said, Eesh, you know, maybe we did something wrong here. But then you see the White House spends an entire week announcing that they're talking to women. 
which made us say we're probably right, and they've realized they got to build it. It's not going to come naturally. They're going to have to build that gap. They're going to have to make the case to women to bring them on. So Obama is up against headwinds, and um, you know the biggest thing for him is that the economy continues to improve. That's really where you know the road gets easier. Yes, sir. Uh, how much do you think Mormons and uh, Romney's Mormon background, how big a part does that play? And how big a part does racism play still mm -hmm. with Obama? Well, they're both definitely factors, and they're both very hard to detect. However, we did a poll. We, we went looking to see if we could find the Mormon effect. And we did a poll last fall. Um, we only did Iowa and New Hampshire Republican voters. So we dove deep in those two states. And we asked two questions in the poll, not next together. And the first one we said, um, does Romney's Mormon faith matter to you? And in Iowa and New Hampshire, it was like 70%, 80%. No, it doesn't matter, irrelevant. Then later in the poll, we asked, um, do you think the Mormon faith is part of the Christian tradition, or do you think it's something else? Something. In Iowa, the something else was like over 50%. In New Hampshire, it was not. Part of the Christian tradition was the majority. And so then we went into the subtabs in Iowa. And what we found is that of the voters who thought it was something else, Romney was their fourth choice. Of those who thought it was part of the Christian tradition, Romney was their top choice. Mm -hmm. So it flipped the results based on what they thought about Mormon faith. Now, we've, we've done the best at trying to like bore into that. But then you look at um, what goes on in the South. And just, you know, he's creamed. And these are evangelicals picking between a Catholic and a Mormon. They don't have one of their own. Although Santorum behaves more like that. But still, um, it's, it's like no contest. He can't compete uh, in that environment. And what some strategists are saying, and I believe Al Hunt's going to do a column on this soon, um, we don't need to broadcast that part of what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> and that is um, what some think is that, you know, he's sort of a McCain-like uh, persona where they settle their nominee that they're not in love with. It's a head pick. It's not a heart pick. And they have the problems with abortion rights and gay marriage and were they tough enough on immigrants? And But that the Mormon thing is just one rock too many. And so it was, it's having an effect in the primary. We're con utterly convinced. Will it in the general? It depends on the second half of your question much of anti-Obama or racism or whatever drives the votes then. Yes. Um, can you say something more about the Democrats' uh, possibility of raising really big money in the general election? The New York Times has had a couple of stories that Peter Lewis and George Soros said they're not particularly interested in this election, not particularly interested in him. I mean, how is this going to play out after <coughs> the conventions? Right. Well, Soros, I always find, and Peter Lewis knows what he's doing, but Soros is not the guy to ask that question to. Soros got in the game for one reason, and that was to get out of the war. He 
he wanted to get rid of George Bush because he hated the war. And, you know, I interviewed him, I sat down with him in his office in New York, and he was completely clear on this. He had not played an outsized role before that election and never has since. He plays some, you know. He's interested in building the apparatus of the Democratic Party. That's kind of where he invests. But he's, no, he's done it once, and he's not going to do it again because he's not. he had one clear motivation in that cycle. But there are plenty of other pockets to pick uh, on the Democratic side. Um, I mean, Hollywood could come up with 30 celebrities who could drop a million dollars, and they had $30 million overnight. Where are they? Uh, they can't hit New York so hard, but they can hit Chicago. I mean, they, according to the interviews I've had with priorities people, is rather than try to cast a wide net, they identified, you know, 50 to 75 people they know could write them a million dollar check. And that's the cleanest way to go do it. And they won't write the checks. So we'll see, now that Obama's asked for it. I mean, Katzenberg threw his check in right off the bat to signal this is legit, you know, not another check after. So why do you think? They don't like them. They think super PACs are an abomination. And, and that they, it's not Obama, it's the idea of super it's, PACs. Yes, it's right. They believed in the argument that went to the Supreme Court, that they think this should be about the candidates and the parties and small donors, and that big fat cats like them should not be able to go in there and do that. I have to say that I think that you're giving them credit for principles that I'm not sure that <laughs> well, that's what they, that's what they, they may not be willing to write the check but I think that if they get the idea that that the Republicans are you know at the gates that's a different question and I think that's why Bill Burton just sits he sits at his bank window and waits because when the attacks start going they'll write the checks they just have to create the vessel and wait for the motivation to come. And the motivation right now can't be Katzenberg and Bill Burton sitting in a room saying this, you know, predicting what will happen. But the but the idea that, for instance, there is a Republican pack of $40 million aimed at the Senate does not get their attention? Actually, the, of all the Democratic committees, the Senate committee is doing the best. It's not doing great, but it's doing the best. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, is America Votes going to have any effect in the general election? Yeah, they'll be playing, yeah. They'll be one of those groups that is out there and, um, well, wait, America Votes. America the third party. You know, I don't think so. They've done an amazing amount of work. You know, they, they've done better than you know, Santorum and Gingrich did and getting on every ballot in every state. It's an amazing amount of work, but um, I don't know who they can recruit to run. That and, and once they do that, they want a Democrat and a Republican. So what are we looking at, Joe Lieberman? <laughs> no, I mean, and really, think about, think about who would do that. Would Newt not do it? Oh, Newt would probably do it. My God, that's more books, but more visits to zoos. Is Joe um, Lieberman is his vice president. Yeah, that, you know, something like that could happen. But I, you know, I don't, I don't think that group would pick them. Well, you that know? group is an online election. It's not a group of well, people in a dark room. That's true. I just don't know who they get to do it. 
I mean, people have talked about, you know, like these really, you know, marquee tickets. Um, you know, Jeb Bush and Tim Kaine or, you know, whatever. And none of those people are crazy. They're not going to do it. It's the end of their political career. And they're not going to win. What about Ron Paul? I don't think Ron Paul would do it, but I think he has said he won't do it. <coughs> He's a Republican. So, you know, whoever does it is killing their own political career and they're not going to win. They may play a spoiler, which we saw in 2000, and we saw how that turned out for Ralph Nader. They're the new Ralph Nader. Uh, in 2008, uh, Obama won a number of red states by a very small margin. And you also have in play this year the swing states. If the election in the election, uh, those, those red states go back to the Republican candidate, with the electoral votes. And let's say the Republican and Obama split the swing states. Could you have a scenario in which Obama has a reasonably comfortable majority and the popular voter loses the electoral vote? Yeah, like 2000. Yeah. I mean, that's possible. We've seen it. So definitely he, he wins the big urban states and loses all the itty bitty rural ones. And But the electoral college trumps the popular vote. We could see that. We've seen it. That's why he, his, his uh, map is, um, it's a lot smaller. It's, he, he's really got, you know, he has to win Ohio because he's probably not going to win Florida. It's just too hard. You know, there's so, the housing collapse hit that state so hard and they aren't recovering. And their unemployment rate is still so high. Um, you know, if the economy improves, maybe um, they'll compete for it. There have been changes in voting laws down there. You know, they Obama killed them in early voting, and so they got rid of the early voting, tightened it up. They've made a lot of changes down there to try to make it harder for him to win. So, the map is is a much more challenging map to the president. Last semester, one of our one of our fellows was uh, Martin McKinnon who mid-semester was in London searching out a bookmaker so he could put down a significant bet that Rubio would be the vice presidential nominee no matter who gets the uh, presidential nominee, nomination. Would you subscribe to that uh, as a good bet? I don't think so. Why? Well, first of all, I don't think Florida is that troublesome. And I think Rubio might be. Um, there are rumors about Rubio. Oh. Yeah. Well, let's hear them. Well, you know, we're at, we're actually going to try to do a dive on these rumors, but there there is talk of a scandal uh, involving money, nothing personal, um, in his financial dealings and prior to being elected. So, you know, they're persistent enough that what we do know is that Jeb Bush tried to warn off. The candidates. Really? Yeah. So that's what made us go, hmm, I wonder what that is. <laughs> so I think if I were going to make a, a if, if someone was going to make like a smart McKinnon strategic bet, I might put it on Rob Portman to make Ohio competitive, Senator from there. But given what this primary has done, I think you 
might also have to look among the conservative ranks and find the one who could be, would have the backing of the conservative community and not offend the independents. I think we've got a whole new, when he was making his bet, we got a whole different dynamic in play. Can it be central? I don't know. I don't think they like each other very much, you know, which doesn't preclude anything. You know, we've seen that happen before, but I, I don't think they... So who would fit that criteria that you're describing? Well, you know, you could go with like a Jim DeMint. You know, there are other conservatives who, um, you know, have the, the same kind of Tea Party, you know, social uh, consistency, um, but haven't been on the national radar in a way that, like Portman's record is fine. But he doesn't, he doesn't offend anybody. Have you, have you done any scrutiny of the Massachusetts uh, Senate race? Uh, not a lot, but I had dinner last night with some, someone who knows a lot more about it. Well, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> um, that, uh, the upshot of the whole thing was that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but this state's not particularly kind to female statewide nominees. And um, Brown is a good old boy. And, you know, he knows how to work the system and work the back rooms. And uh, that gives him an advantage. He is recognized uh, that he got behind legitimately. And he's doing everything he's supposed to do to remind people about why they liked him. And I have to admit, in Washington, he's, he has made some very, very smart decisions where he's taken on his own party and made and cast votes that were all about his own reelection. Um, I think he's going to be very tough to beat. And I think she's, from what I understand, she's a lot better than I thought she'd be. She's supposed to be pretty darn good with the groups out there in her campaigning. Um, but I think she's got uh, an uphill climb. Um, there's a lot of talk about how and to what extent the negative ads affect the campaign. Certainly a lot of talk about how money and to what effect it will. And now we have both of them coming together. The PACs have weighed in, and they've weighed in on the negative, negative side. Do you regard that as inevitable or something that might change? Oh, it's inevitable. Yeah. I mean, that's the role of the super PAC. Um, when we looked at the early spending on advertising, for instance, um, Romney and Iowa, and I might be off a little bit on the numbers, but let's say in Iowa, Romney spent $1.6 million on positive ads. Restore Our Future spent $1.8 million on negative ads. It was a perfect ratio. They divided up good cop, bad cop. And so Romney never had to be at the end of that ad saying, I approve this. And uh, that was has been true when Gingrich got the Adelson money and suddenly came to life. The same dynamic happened there. The only one who's put out negative ads and stood by him was Ron Paul. And did you see his ads? Did you see the big dog ad? Oh, you gotta go see the big dog ad. It's hilarious. It is, his ads were the best ads out there. And his uh, attack ads on Gingrich were uh, much more effective than Romney's because it was entirely true. 
<laughs> and, you know, I mean, why you exaggerate? You don't need to do that. <laughs> At any rate, he didn't, and his, both that ad and then his big dog ad. What is the big dog? Well, he's talking about how he, basically it's it's done with like the music that you would hear from a NASCAR race, you know, <laughs> and it's that uh, you know he's this, he's the big dog out there, and that the rest of them are little chihuahuas, and so he has these little chihuahuas and little barking, and it's just hilarious. It really is hilarious, and to the idea that it was like the guy who's seventy seven who put that ad out it was. All the more reason to respect Ron Paul and his, <laughs> you know, his own little creativity. Back to all of the citizens united. I don't understand why we know, in some cases, um, Adelson, Adelson, whatever his name is, supporting um, uh, uh, Newt. And um, uh, are we going to know, like, what the uh, the lovely Koch brothers in Wichita are doing? Mm -hmm. I mean, is uh, the fact, how do we know anything? Because it's, uh, it's supposed to all be sub rosa, the uh, PAC spending. I mean, I don't know how we know that some of these people are, you know, are, are and are we going to know anything going forward, really? What's the well, we're, we're, we are all uh, left to the mercy and generosity of the candidates and the donors themselves. Um, I think in the candidates, in the candidate associated PAC environment, clearly almost everybody decided we better have names on this because you get a bunch of anonymous million dollar donors nobody knows who's buying the next president and that I think they concluded was a bridge too far now that said Romney has um, these LLCs in his donors these are where they uh, an individual is setting up a corporation to hide behind so he has a few in there um, but largely we know who um, so uh, the law doesn't make them do that. So this was a decision made by the various campaigns and they all came to some, you know, amazing, surprising group agreement, right? They probably all have the same lawyer, but at any rate. Um, it, but the, Obama has it set up two ways. So he's got a public account and a secret account. And the Republicans don't have that. Obama has that. Now, Karl Rove and the outside groups have, the ones that are good have a public and a private. That's, that's, like your, that's like your gold standard. And everybody else goes downhill from there, where you hit freedom works where you can't tell anything. Um, but all of these are decisions they're all making with their lawyers because the Federal Election Commission can't act. I mean, we have to keep in mind that it's not one court rule. It's really three different court rulings, and do not ask me all three of them. <laughs> and the failure of the Federal Election Commission to be able to then write rules and regulations that would explain how these things are supposed to comply with those court decisions. So, yeah, speech now set the individual wealthy donors free. And then Citizens United set the corporations and labor unions free. And then there is a third one in there that set the super PACs apart from regular PACs, because there are limits on political action committees. But somehow these super PACs in another court case became separated and they can take, take unlimited amounts of money.
So those were the three court rulings. And then you had the Fed, the FEC, you know, the staff gave them, you know, proposed rules and regulations for how these were going to work, and then they deadlocked. And so now, basically, Ben Ginsburg and a couple of lawyers down in Washington, D.C., are figuring out what they think the court meant. And someday, if the FEC is ever functional, we'll find out if they challenge some of these things. Is there any will in either political party to force the issue in terms of identifying the source of the money? If I think if the Democrats regained control of the House and Senate, they might pass the Disclose Act, which would then require disclosure across the board. And Kennedy has signaled he is for disclosure. So that one would Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy. Yes, Justice Kennedy. So, well, they all said they were for disclosure, but Kennedy in particular is viewed as the vote that if that, if they could get that passed, we could get full disclosure. The, um, it, 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 I could not understand why in that lame duck session that wasn't the last thing Pelosi got done. Well, she did. Reid didn't get it done. That was their last chance. So that's a perfect segue into my question. I mean, the Disclose Act did get 59 votes in the Senate, right? Why wouldn't it, even, even if the Democrats were to maintain control of the Senate, they're not going to have a filibuster-proof majority. Why would it go down any differently next time around? Yeah, they need a supermajority. So what do we think the chances are? Right. Now, there might be votes that change, though, given what they've seen happen to them. I mean, that's how McCain-Feingold got passed. Final question, Bob. Uh, will the Justice Department be able to delay implementation of the voter ID acts uh, that the Republican legislatures and governors are passing around the state? It will depend on the timing of many of them. Um, I, um, it's hard to tell because, you know, in Texas they put that primary off indefinitely because they are unresolved in terms of redistricting and voting issues. Florida's in court, South Carolina's in court, so it's possible that some of those would be delayed. However, we, I asked a reporter to, in the primary, to go find and write about them. And I said, but you don't leave Washington until you're going to go in and interview somebody who can't vote because of this law. And he spent three weeks on it and could not find anyone. And what's happening is they find ways around it. For instance, Wisconsin was the most outrageous, um, right? Obama, that, that um, was aimed at students, and we know the youth vote in Wisconsin and other states was critical to Obama winning. So they passed a law that said you can't use for voting purposes an ID card that doesn't have an expiration date. <laughs> Student IDs, you know, I don't know what you all have here, but up there, they just had a picture and you know their name and that kind of stuff. So the universities reissued their IDs with a, an expiration date. South Carolina, you know, the groups found a way to wiggle around the law that was passed there. Um, so I I don't know how they they sound horrendous, um, but when you get on the ground, people are figuring them out. And there are sure to be some 
we, we couldn't find them, but there's, there's probably somebody somewhere who's going to be disenfranchised. Florida is a mess. Florida is so complicated, I had to rule it out as one of the states we would focus on because we couldn't write it. The reporter could not sit there and tell me it without me going, wait, what are you saying? I mean, you need a chart to follow what's going on in Florida. So my guess is they are the most vulnerable to having something bad happen because their rules change from county to county, from precinct to precinct. Would you like to handicap Obama versus Gingrich versus Romney? Well, provided we're talking about today. Today. Okay. Um, if uh, the economy continues to improve, then I think Obama can win. Um, if the economy stalls, then then I think he's in for a dogfight. And How about if, a war? <laughs> um, the only way we end up in one of those again is if they come ashore. Um, so, I mean, if and if the economy tanks, you know, he's probably gone. Gene, thank you very much.